I'm Elizabeth Meyer. And I'm Elizabeth Monson. And this is Talking to Myself. Which is our podcast where we read self-betterment books with the purpose of being able to kind of talk through our career considerations, things that are going on in our lives, and maybe apply some learnings to them. I think that sounds perfect. So this week we'll be talking about the power of habit, why we do what we do in life and business. So should we get started by talking about kind of what this book is even about? I mean, the title is kind of obvious. Yeah, definitely. But what's what's the gist? So this book for me was a scientific look at how habits are formed and basically how with that knowledge they can be systematically changed. So we looked at a lot of different case studies of what researchers from MIT call the habit loop, starting from medical examples and ranging to things that seem really mundane, like biting your nails, mm-hmm. um, and then more serious topics like murder and bankruptcy. Oh so, my god, you're making this sound so fascinating! <laughs> right? Everyone should read it. But by all seriously, it was like a two thumbs up for me. Kind of a life changer. Yeah, you liked it. Yeah, I thought it was I great. You might. Yeah. So the book is divided into three parts. The first section focuses on how habits emerge within individual lives. Then it goes into successful companies and organizations. And the last part looks at the habits of societies. Um, so, yeah, you were right. Like, all these case studies that apply to different different parts of the world. What was your favorite? Did you have a favorite of those three? I really enjoyed all of the sections. I And I thought that the the order in which they were presented was also really compelling. Um, For me, any sort of, I'm not really a scientific thinker. So typically when I'm learning about new concepts like this, it really helps that they're supported by stories. And there was just an endless number of stories that really resonated. Um, There was this one section in particular where I was thinking about it and it made me it made me realize that one as a human you've experienced all of the things that they outline countless times whether or yeah. not you're naming it something um but the part that i remember being like oh my gosh i feel like i'm a sheep was do you remember <laughs> the the radio program that is designed to be able to tell if a song is going to be a hit or not. Yeah. I thought that was really fascinating. So they give some of the background on it. Yeah. So they talk about, and I, I hope I don't misquote it, but there is some sort of a technology that basically when a song is played can figure out all of the things that resonate with people when they're listening to songs specifically on the radio. So the example that they gave as a chart topper, it had never seen such results. This program was in 2003 when they played Hey Ya. And obviously we all know now in hindsight that was one of the yeah, biggest hits. big hit. But what was really interesting was that Hey Ya flopped on the radio when it was introduced to the radio. And... The reason is, again, there, there were other programs at the time that were determining, and I think probably still do, the switch rate. So how often people are turning in to tuning into your channel and then what compels them to switch 
to a different channel. Mm-hmm. And so they were analyzing that the switch rate was exorbitantly high every single time DJs were playing Hey Ya to audiences, which was obviously completely counter to what this tool taught right. them. And so upon studying this further, because there are lots of people who dedicate their sole careers to being able to figure out how to craft the perfect playlist, and it's actually not necessarily about the best or the newest songs. It's actually about what the human mind expects to hear when they're listening to the radio. So when a certain demographic was polled about how they felt about Celine Dion songs, they said, oh, you know, I can't stand Celine Dion. I, you know, I would never go to one of her concerts. I don't find her interesting to listen to whatsoever. But then the data on the radio showed that people weren't really changing this, the channel when Celine Dion played. And it's because, you know, if you think about when you're listening to the radio, oftentimes you're commuting somewhere, mm-hmm. your mind might be somewhere else, and the human subconscious wants to be able to recognize things on the radio. Yeah, I liked that. I mean, I feel like Celine Dion has obvious shameless appeal, so <laughs> it's a good example. I love that they use that. But... I really liked they were talking about Three Doors Down and Maroon 5. Maroon 5 was the other yeah, one. Yeah, and his, like, how he actually, I just loved that he basically, like, like dissed Maroon 5 in a real way. But he basically says these bands are so featureless that criti- critics and listeners created a new music category, quote-unquote, bath rock, to describe their tepid sounds. Yet whenever they came on the radio, almost no one changed the station. And he says it's because every single one of their songs sounds the same. And, you know, I was reading this and I was thinking, oh, my goodness, I am so annoyed by every single Maroon 5 hit. But when they come on the radio, I sing along to them. I don't change them. I sing (laughs) along to them. And it's what they're talking about is your your subconscious is craving some sort of familiarity when you're listening to the radio. So to close the loop, hey, I didn't sound like anything else. So in order to get listeners to become comfortable with listening to hey, they needed to pepper it with like a Celine Dion on one side and a Maroon 5 on the other so that they were willing to give this new sound a chance. So I I mean, I thought there were really endless examples here of, of habit loops, as they're called, that I've seen myself fall into a number of times. But this one really stuck out to me because you kind of think you're in control of when you change the radio station, but it turns out you're not. No, you're not. Yeah, the kind of like the conclusion of that that case study was whether a, a new song, a new food, or a new crib, the lesson is the same. If you dress a new something in old habits, it's easier for the public to accept it. And I feel like you can just see that in the world once you realize it. Yeah. And you also see yourself doing it. There were so many things in this book that were not only really applicable directly to my life, but also to work because there's a whole section on businesses. Mm -hmm. And I think this was a really interesting book to read as a marketer. And they had a ton of case studies that were so awesome. But I thought the Paradent study was hilarious. About about brushing, toothbrushing? Yeah, brushing your teeth. So that wasn't a thing, apparently. I know. That's not like a medical health hygienic thing. That's something that was created by advertisers. And the ad agency was basically looking 
for a way to get people to actually want to brush their teeth. And what he discovered was that people had this feeling on their teeth that was unappealing, but not so bad that people would actually brush. And if they actually identified it and used Paradent as the solution to get that gross film off your teeth, then that became the habit. But the interesting thing, this guy, he was such a genius without really necessarily knowing it at the time because what he called your the film right. could be removed by eating an apple or right. running your tongue over your teeth. And what he did without knowing it years later, it was these MIT researchers mm-hmm. who named it this habit loop, was he identified the cue, which was the, the film on your the teeth, film on your right? Teeth. The reward was brushing to have beautiful teeth, get get rid of the film. And then the third part was the craving, which completes sort of the, the, the loop. loop for creating a routine. And the craving here was minty breath. So that was so interesting to me, too, because I grew up in a very health-first family to the point where, like... Natural toothpaste. Natural toothpaste. We had Tom's and we had fennel toothpaste. And I just remember being at sleepovers at my friend's house and having these, like, bursts of mint toothpaste and being like, that's what it's all about. I'd brush my teeth all the time if I had this. But, like, getting me to brush my teeth before bed... Fennel toothpaste legit sounds disgusting. But it does the same thing for you, and that's what they're talking about. Like, the the actual recipe is just as healthy for you. Right. It's just that you don't get that same tingling sense in your gums. So it's not creating a craving in your mind. So your body isn't going through this process where it's identifying this routine that feels normal for you to go through. And, again, thinking back to my childhood and thinking to now, I brush my teeth all the time, and now I have my own minty toothpaste since I have you know, a bank account. Yeah, but now I use organic toothpaste because yeah. all those, like, weird fizzing and stuff. It's true. It doesn't actually do anything. It's really just to try to it, cue you to want it again. Because that was another piece of the craving, right? Mm-hmm. The bubbly sensation. You could yep. use the same exact ingredients, but if you don't have that after effect of creating lots of suds, somehow you don't feel like your teeth are clean. Yeah. That's fake, everyone. That's advertising. Advertising. (laughs) That's another podcast. Yeah, that's another podcast. (laughs) But, I mean, this guy is a genius, and it's so fascinating. Um, I think my favorite case study was about about Febreze. That was really good, too. Which is basically the same thing. I mean, Febreze was formulated by scientists. It actually physically takes the smell out of your clothes, the formulation, or out of fabrics, It was. It's such a strong, powerful concoction that NASA uses. NASA's it. use, yeah. Yeah, it's and amazing. What they found was that people who truly had smelly homes weren't really interested in using this product because they didn't re- realize that their homes were smelly in the first place. Um, like, there was a few like examples if you have a lot did. of cats. Yeah, the woman had a lot of cats. She was basically completely desensitized to the smell of cats. And so she didn't realize that she needed Febreze, even if her friends and family know that she does. There was another component to that, too, right? It's the woman who had a dog who knew her dog was really smelly, but who wants to admit that your dog is smelly and therefore your home could be smelly? So if you're approaching those people by trying to entice them to buy your product by saying your home won't smell anymore, then they have to acknowledge that their home smell in the first place and who really wants to do that? No one. But what they did find was that people who were already clean liked to use it kind of as the reward at the end of cleaning their homes. And so then they were able 
to kind of discover that behavior and then build campaigns to encourage that same craving. So they figured it out and then built cravings for people. That was pretty incredible because what you probably don't realize is that Febreze was once a failing product. It was going to be a huge disappointment for them (laughs) because of the fact that the technology behind it was so powerful. Mm -hmm. So it was more about the way that they observed people's habits in order to figure out how to create a message that would resonate with them. Awesome case studies. I feel like there's another one I want to get to after, but I have to ask in terms of like the personal habits. I did air quotes so our listeners know. (laughs) Personal (laughs) habits. What is a habit that you would want to change? This is so hard. You knew I was going to ask, right? I I didn't know. I should have been more prepared. I thought about asking you this question. Are you prepared for an answer? Yeah. Okay. Let me think really quickly. So in terms of habits that I want to change, a really big one is that I can't wake up in the morning. And this has just always been a problem for me. And I just blame it on not being a morning person. But I know that's not true because... Because you just read a book about it? Well, because I just (laughs) read a book about it. So scientifically, it's not true. But also, I do triathlons, and triathlon season is in the summer, and it gets really hot in New York, and if you want to get in a workout outside, it has to be be first thing in the morning. So when I'm doing triathlon training, I, after after several weeks, have no problem popping Mm -hmm. out of bed. I change my whole cycle. And I was thinking back to why that works, and I was trying to identify then that habit loop for me, so that... Well, you definitely Q. have a reward. The reward is is pretty clear, right? Like you set a goal and you achieve it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's good enough for some people. It probably doesn't work in every single instance mm-hmm. because it can seem like it's not really tangible. Yeah. But in those instances, like completing the race or doing better or feeling stronger or faster is always a really good reward for me. The cue, and he mentions exercise a lot throughout Mm -hmm. the duration of the book because, you know, a lot of people want to change their their, um, health patterns. Mine was always to pick out my workout outfit and my workout outfit the Mm -hmm. night before. So not just putting my running shoes and whatever I was going to wear to go for a run or go to the gym um, someplace physical, but also making sure that I knew what I was going to wear to work afterwards so that I could do what I needed to do, come in, shower quickly, and get out the door. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think what I want to do is recreate my sleeping patterns. (laughs) And so one of the things that the author talks a lot about is creating this habit loop. Yeah. So, again, we've been talking about this a lot. It's the cue and it's the reward. And then it's the – basically the reward – begins to cultivate a craving, which is the start of creating a routine. And then the execution of the routine is the third layer in creating this habit loop to the point where it just becomes automatic. Automatic, And so that's the goal there because you're no longer thinking about it once it's automatic, which means that conceivably you can use that brain power somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So the trickier piece is breaking the habits. So for me now, waking up early won't just be creating a new habit. It'll be breaking some bad ones, too, because I go to sleep really late. Right. I don't really sleep very well. And I don't really, I'm not really in a position where I need to be up very early. Yeah, now that you're Now that I'm a freelancer, living this freelance lifestyle. So, but 
when I think about those those times in my life where I can make myself get up early and do that, I know that I feel better. So that's even thinking about that's a reward. So yeah, with exercise, the reward of endorphins like always works. It always works, especially first thing in the morning. And that's the thing I'm in a pattern now where I'm exercising at night. And so like I have that component where at least I'm yeah, you have the endorphins. I have the endorphins the just <laughs> at the wrong time. And when you exercise at night, it's like you can't fall asleep even worse. Would you try to trick yourself with another reward? So this is what he says. He says to keep the old cue, this is how you break a habit. Mm-hmm. So you keep the old cue. But sometimes the cue isn't as obvious as it might seem. So what he wants you to do is ask about this cue. So ask questions about it, like, what time does it occur? Where will you be? Who else will be around? What are your emotions? And the example that he uses is remember the chocolate cookie, yeah. chocolate chip cookie. So he's an investigative journalist, I think, for the New York mm-hmm. Times. He, um, at 3.30 every single day, was eating a chocolate chip cookie. And so you might think that the reward is the chocolate chip cookie. But he was thinking, okay, the cue. The cue is it's 3.30. Right. Every single day at 3.30, I'm restless. And he realized this when he started looking at what made him get up from his desk. Mm-hmm. And the reward wasn't the chocolate chip cookie because the chocolate chip cookie made him gain, like, 10 pounds. His <laughs> wife kept talking to him about it. He, you know, was felt kind of guilty every single time right. he ate one. He thought it might be boredom. So he would get up and stretch his legs. He'd go for a walk. And he, he tried, you know, at 3.30, one day he would go get up and stretch his legs. The next day he thought it might be hunger. So he would eat an apple. Healthy, and yeah. still he would have this craving And then he realized it was socialization because when he went to get this cookie, he also was able to spend time with people that he liked in the cafeteria and eat with and eat alongside them while he had conversations with them. So the new reward that he created was at 3.30 every day, he went into a colleague's office and had a conversation with them. Mm -hmm. And this is how he created this sort of routine. Right. Getting down to the bottom of what actually is causing your habits is super challenging it's really hard the whole thing almost it's really hard so with with the the habit recreating the habit loop once you've sort of identified what this cue is what you need to do is maybe figure out how to deliver the old reward but in a different way right so a lot of the things that um that the author says about doing this sort of revolve around writing these things down. Mm -hmm. So apparently breaking and executing a new habit is best done when you keep track of it. Well, they definitely say that about keeping health goals. Yeah, but do you remember the nail biter? Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. So she had, she was advised to, she had a horrible crippling nail biting habit to the point where she would ball up her fist when she was in public and it really impeded her ability to have a good social life or to go on dates. And she was totally mortified by it, but really couldn't control it. And so she was seeing somebody who was testing out a new program about creating new habits, Uh breaking bad habits and creating new ones. And he just had her check a bot or like he said it to her to check every time she felt an urge to do it Uh the first week, which I kind of like because it holds you accountable. Like, Keeping a food diary, it's like you're constantly logging things. This is well, just a check. Yeah, but this is just a check, it's which is super so easy, easy to keep track of. Yeah, totally. And then after that, he'd say, what's the feeling that you feel right before you 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 bite your nails mm-hmm. or you create that check mark?" And 
she felt some sort of like anxiety or panic or tension. And he said, well, so the nail biting releases that for you because it's just this like one gesture. And she said, yeah, well, that's probably it. And he said, okay, well, next time that happens to you for the next week, like wrap your knuckles on the desk Mm -hmm. when that happens to you because you're releasing that tension tension by doing something else that's physical. And whereas the first week she'd had like 35 check marks, the second week she had three. Right. So he really honed in on getting her to figure out what what actually was, was happening to create that behavior. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting. Yeah. So you asked me a hard question. It's hard to think about the habit that I want to break. But I think waking up early is a really good one because I just know that it makes, makes me feel, feel better. better. It probably makes me a nicer person. Well, I don't know. You're pretty nice. <laughs> so Thank you. I wouldn't go that far. Thanks. Did you think about yours? Yeah, I mean, mine honestly is very similar to his. I definitely like have a crazy sweet tooth that I wish I could control better. And it's purely based on bad habits. So like I will want a sweet treat in the afternoon if I want some social interaction with Is my it coworkers. like your reward somehow? Or is it just like you want to get up and stretch your legs and get away from your desk and chat with people and forget about what's going on in your day? I think I do it when I'm like, I've been really good. Yeah. I deserve It's usually a I've been good. Yeah. Which is not even the case necessarily. Like, it does usually revolve around social situations or even stretching my legs or getting, like, fresh air for me because I'm in an office most of the day. So I think that I could replace it with just a conversation or some other social interaction or fresh air. Like, Well, you're lucky because you can use his exact I case know. study. It's very easy. <laughs> um, but it's not. That's the thing about it. You can recognize no. how to change it, but then you have to put in a lot of hard work, obviously. Yeah. So I thought that that was a really interesting um, takeaway from this book, and it was sort of highlighted by this one other case study. I don't know if this is the one that you were thinking of. The gambling is yeah, what I was going to say. So it, the book ends with this super compelling case study that what it's talking about which I think is also interesting because two things that we haven't really talked about are the first one is that he is very clear and says that you can only change your habits if you believe that you can change your habits which is something that is not that easy and clearly super essential Um, and then he goes into the question of how responsible are people for their own habits? That's what I was just going to talk about, responsibility. Yeah. So do you want to explain that? Well, so the the two studies that he highlights mm-hmm. at the end are both about people who suffer from pretty severe habits. One is about a man who is a sleepwalker. Right. That's, and that's horrible. he very tragically strangles his wife and kills her while they're on a camping vacation. And so he's struggled with violent reactions and outbursts and sleepwalking to the point, and he knows about it, so he... And it's because when his body receives a certain stimulus, it goes into its routine, which is how he would react. So he thought that he was being robbed. He thought he was being robbed because there had just been an incident, too, Mm -hmm. outside of their tent, they actually moved their tent because there were people on motorcycles outside like that, that were, yeah. And then he thought he, that 
that he was being robbed and that one of the men that they had just had an encounter with was on top of his wife. Right. Started to strangle who he thought was the man and killed his wife. And basically the the outcome when he went to trial and was charged for manslaughter was, one, there was this whole scientific study on this very real documented past and history of his... Um, disorder. Of his disorder. And then the other piece was um, that he was genuinely so distraught about this. He had had, you know, a great relationship with his wife. They had two grown children. Any testimony said that he and, and she had an incredible relationship. And basically the verdict was that he would suffer enough for his own crime without having to be imprisoned. Give him any more charges. I mean, I think that this case also is super black and white. It's someone who had a very well-documented history of sleep disorders, someone who also had a, like, very well-documented great relationship with his wife, and there's legal precedent for things like this. He's not the first case that was brought around crimes committed whilst the perpetrator was sleeping. Right. Um, But then on the contrast was a woman who developed a gambling and I'm going to call it addiction, addiction. not a it habit, addiction. but she was a gambling addict because she was a housewife who was really bored and seeking for ways for her to have something that felt meaningful or that she was good at. And she was good at it. She, she started amazing. winning a lot of money Yeah, and she'd spent an entire life feeling like she was never particularly talented at anything. Right. So she really did develop this neurological pattern where actual endorphins went off in her brain when she was even close to that was my favorite part. That was so crazy. So basically, you want to talk about that? Yeah. They did a study of gamblers, and it was playing slots, was it? And so basically they looked at their brain patterns to see what happens when they win or what when they lose. And what it showed was that people who have gambling addictions um, actually have the same experience, even heightened, of winning when they get close to winning, but lose. So they still lose. The outcome's the same. And they they also take people who don't gamble at all. And they show what that looks like in their brains. And a loss is a loss. If you lose your money, you lose your money. Don't get a spike. But in a gambler's mind... If you lose your money, you're still getting the same physiological If you get, like, two cherries and then a non-matching symbol. You were close. So you still get the same reaction. And you want to keep doing it. It was incredible. So the takeaway with this woman, Mm -hmm. she had a really long, pretty sad story around gambling where she acknowledged that gambling was a problem and she... Tried to avoid it. She tried to avoid it. She went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was living in Iowa, I believe, and moved to a state where gambling is illegal. So right. she really had acknowledged the fact that she had a gambling problem after she filed for bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the casinos had this inordinate amount of data. They had some pretty sophisticated customer recognition technology yeah. where they could basically figure out what her spending patterns looked like and what, what they would look like over time. And exactly what it would take her to get her back to the table. So they did. They... They started offering her some all-expense mm-hmm. trips out to Tahoe. She said, oh, she needed to bring her daughter. Her daughter wanted to bring a friend. They paid for everything. They gave her a line of um, 
credit, they gave her actual money to play with yeah. on the house. I think like ten thousand dollars, not small money. They got her tickets to see like the Eagles and con- yeah, I, they got her concert tickets, like everything. above and beyond. And in the beginning, she was just you know feeling really special, and then. Lo and behold, she starts spending again, and the really sad part is that her parents passed away, mm-hmm. and she was pretty close to her parents. They worked very hard to be able to leave her a $1 million inheritance. And she ends up gambling away. She blew through the whole thing. She lies to her husband. It's the whole, it's the whole deal. But essentially, when she is suing... So the casino ends up suing her because she hasn't paid her debts to them and so they're suing her and then she she countersues and says actually what you've done to me is just basically take advantage of someone who has a problem a problem and it's a documented problem they yeah. knew she had filed for bankruptcy so then in comparing these two studies with this man who had a habit and ended up killing his wife and wasn't convicted of manslaughter and this woman who had this documented habit of gambling and had filed for bankruptcy and then lost her entire inheritance like what's what's the key difference between the two of them because the the jury did not rule in favor of this woman no they found her in fact people found her intolerable i think there was a lot of press around this right and i think she was pretty vocal about the fact that she felt like she was not to blame so Potentially, if she had felt more remorse or who knows, a jury might have ruled differently. But basically, these are two people who are ruled by habits. One is seen as responsible for their habits and the other is not. Yeah, it comes down to responsibility. Yeah. And I don't know, I I found it very interesting because when you think about a habit, it seems like a human should be able to manage or control their own habits. Like if you're given the right tools, but something like an addiction is some, maybe I don't blame someone. I don't know. It's, I don't know. Well, how they talk about, about AA a lot too. And there, and that's where belief comes into it a lot. Yeah. I think AA was one of those first really successful programs that was able to identify habits, figure out how to, how to break them by creating this whole support network. And then also integrating that fourth component around belief, belief, um, but it's, it, it is really hard, but it's also, everybody has habits, but not everybody acknowledges that they are habits. And so right. for me, the takeaway of this entire book was that once you, once with this understanding that these exist, that this habit loop exists and that it's a scientific thing also comes the responsibility to change your habits. Right. And that restructuring your habits can make it so that you can actually create the life you want for yourself. Oh, completely. I mean, do you find it empowering? I find it so empowering. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, of course. It's also like you have to have that moment where you're like, okay, I'm going to acknowledge the things that I do that are bad. Because you have to take responsibility again. And then you want to document how you can change those things. And then you want to embrace it. But I think... Yeah, I think it's really empowering. It definitely changed my outlook on a lot of things. Yeah. I mean, my favorite parts are about the individual. I think looking at your individual habits and figuring out how to... I mean, obviously, we're doing a podcast about self-betterment. That's what I'm interested in. Um, I thought the case studies around the businesses were the most interesting. 
the societal ones, I don't know if I fully bought into. Those were really hard. Those, but um, in general, I think, yeah, that idea that once you believe that you can create change in your life and you actually look at what you want to change and why it's there in the first place, that you can kind of build a whole new set of habits around that is really fantastic. Yeah. What was anything, what didn't you like? Well, I didn't like reading the part about the nail biter because they talked about her fingers looking like bloody stumps. It was pretty graphic (laughs) and disgusting. I really liked all of it. I liked, um, you know, to build off of what you were just saying about recognizing even just one thing that you Mm -hmm. could do that would spiral into a series of positive changes. The the company profile where the new CEO came in with an entirely different background. Everyone was really skeptical. And the only thing that he vowed to do was to improve safety. safety. He focused on one thing and the value of this company just skyrocketed because everybody could unite on wanting people to be safer. People have lots of different opinions through a business lens about what you should be focusing on. Mm -hmm. Like, should you be, you know, in in our world, should you be focusing your strategy on retail or e-commerce? Should you be pulling out of wholesale? Should you be doing more experiential marketing? There are endless ways to approach budget allocation. Right. But, and people will disagree on those things because they are all coming at it from different perspectives with different goals. When you're talking about safety, nobody wants anybody to be unsafe in the workplace. So people were willing to change their processes towards this greater goal. I thought that was really interesting. Everyone could agree on it. Saying creating successful organizations isn't just a matter of balancing authority. For an organization to work, leaders must cultivate habits that both create a real and balanced peace and paradoxically make it absolutely clear who's in charge. And I mean, I think the other thing about the the safety concerns is that it created a very clear hierarchy and chain of command. So as soon as someone saw something that was unsafe, they had to go to their next, their supervisor. And if their supervisor wasn't available, they had to go directly to whatever the managers and it created a, a very clear chain, but also access for yeah. the people who are like on the floor manufacturing. Um, yeah, that, that one was interesting. That was cool. Did you have any parts you didn't like? Um, I didn't love the parts, some of the parts about habits of societies. Like I felt like he goes into a section about, or a case study around Rosa Parks and how cultural movements, the and- cultural movements are created by small habit changes. And I felt like it was a little bit weak. I thought so too. What he was trying to say is that around Rosa Parks, that there had been lots of other documented instances where people did really similar things, but right. it didn't catch because. And what it, makes this catch? What made it? What made it catch? And I think he was also trying to say that it's a series of small events that build up people's belief in the possibility of change and that being so important in change actually coming to fruition. But I don't the not, other not such a clear, clear path to the craving, routine, and reward. Totally, because I think with the other ones, it was so clear how you could take them and implement them, whether in your career or in your personal life. And this one, like, 
I wouldn't know that I would be able to start a successful social movement because of the information that I learned in those chapters. You could still try. I I, I know. I'm actually like have a project right now where I'm like, how do I create a craving for XYZ? Um, And that's honestly how I'm framing it to try to figure it out. That's a really good idea. Yeah. You just have to figure out how to recreate the whole paradigm campaign. I know. Make it, and because the other it's thing... It's good because our product is minty. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, the, well, the other thing that I thought was really awesome about that from a business perspective is, like, not only did you identify the cue and the reward and the craving, it only works if you brush twice a day. Yes. So you have to keep buying the shit. Well, that's the same as, like, rinse and repeat on conditioner, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think... So I'm using that, like, how do I create a craving? And then, this is just both in a business context, but... Um, selling something new to people framed in things that they're already familiar with. Oh, the repackaging. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think those are the two things that I'm definitely taking straight from this. Yeah. And putting that's cool. into some work. Good. See, we're learning. Yeah. All right. Are we done? We're, I think we're done. Yeah. Thanks Wrap. for listening. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs>